Legacy Podcasts present Torque, a novel by Ty Drago, performed for you by the author, and featuring music by Nicholas Allen Nelson. The 24th Cog. When Rand arrived at the middle late in the day, he found it different. From atop a hundred-foot gearbox, with the ceiling of the big knot just yards above his head, he looked down on a market choked with keepers. Their numbers had tripled. Few upper folk patroned the shops these days, and those who did were escorted not by one, but two or even three green uniforms. What's more, the keepers all had their pistols or sabers drawn, and looked every bit as nervous as the lower folk traders, whom they eyed with open suspicion. Meanwhile, even more keepers filled the market aisles, marching in regular patrols. As they passed by, any shop owners without customers on hand ducked fearfully inside their shops. Scattered throughout the market, criers stood at the rostrums, loudly celebrating the keepers' heroic efforts to restore order and welcoming the enhanced protective forces. No one mentioned the slaughter down in the black. Traders notwithstanding, there were lower folk on hand. Plenty of them stood in the factory lines across the drop, of course, but most had apparently decided to steer clear of the middle market. Most, but not all. As Rand watched, a lower leaden lass turned a corner and walked straight into one of the roving keeper patrols. Heated words were exchanged, and before long the two were dragged to the whipping posts, while nearby traders looked helplessly on. The hapless pair were manacled to two of the posts, as Ainsley and Lucy had been, while the contingent leader brandished his whip. Almost directly above, Rand argued with himself. He wanted to go down there. The situation screamed for a visit from Torque. But today, just today, he didn't dare risk open confrontation. He needed to lay low and wait for Ainsley. That was the plan. The first lash sounded, sharp and brutal, followed by a pitiful cry of pain. Son of a rat turd, Rand muttered. He jumped off the roof. Moments later, he landed in a cloud of vapor right on top of the keeper with the whip, knocking him flat. Then he sprayed the rest with steam before they could react. As they fled, blowing their whistles, Rand freed the lower folk, directing them to hide in a nearby shop. They thanked him profusely and ran as whistles blew nearby. Rand waited until the couple was safely hidden and a dozen keepers appeared surrounding him. Then, sure that he had their undivided attention, he launched himself upward, wrapped in a curtain of steam. As he'd hoped, the keepers scanned the gearbox roofs and forgot all about the two lower folk who'd nearly been flogged. Finally, red-faced and frustrated, they lumbered off, a few of them lagging back to attend to their injured comrade. With the fuss over, at least for now, things quieted down. Rand turned his attention to the lift platform and waited. Lifts arrived. Lifts departed. The prearranged meeting time came and went. No Ainsley. Rand felt the first inkling that something was wrong. But he kept waiting. What else could he do? Then, after an hour had gone by, he finally spotted her. Ainsley exited the lift amidst a gaggle of similarly dressed upper ladies. But while the real maids headed at once toward the market, Ainsley walked on shaky legs to the platform's edge and stood there, not moving and not looking at or for anybody. Rand felt his heart beat a little faster. This was actually happening. The plan called for Ainsley to make a show of having forgotten her coin purse. She'd pretend to search her pockets and then return in fake frustration to the lift. There, she'd excuse herself to the keepers, who forever monitored everyone's comings and goings, and head back to the uppers. 
The whole charade seemed a bit much, but Ainsley had assured him it was necessary. Rand, after all, had never been to the uppers, and wouldn't be able to easily find the keep on his own. So Ainsley had offered to come down to the market, fetch him, and point out the way once they were both atop the machine. Simple enough. So why did Rand feel like there was a gun aimed at him? Below, Ainsley launched into her act, half-heartedly searching the folds of her dress. She moved stiffly as though in a trance. No one seemed to notice her, which was good because her performance wouldn't have fooled anybody. Finally, she went back to the lift, where a keeper with a clipboard nodded her through. The lift doors closed smoothly, and the car began to move. So did Rand. He launched off the gearbox and let the steam carry him clear of the market and onto the roof of the rising lift. He landed in another cloud of vapor, touching down as lightly as he could. Then he instantly crouched and peered over the lip of the roof, watching for some reaction from the keepers on the platform. Nothing. As he'd hoped, the clatter of the lift had masked his vault. Rand checked his counters. The pipe had been full when he'd left the flop. With some of the space having been taken up by grease cartridges, only a dozen bursts of steam remained. And he'd need at least one to get back to the lowers. Saving those lower folk from the lash had cost him. But he didn't regret it. A moment later, as the rising lift in its stowaway disappeared into the upper drop, Rand was swallowed by darkness. This part of the machine was empty. No levels, no gearboxes, and certainly no people, upper or lower folk. Over the centuries, the upper folk engineers had gradually ripped away all of the extraneous metal above the middle market, leaving nothing behind but a vast empty infrastructure. These raw materials had been used to build their huge gleaming palaces, though some lower folk suspected a second reason for cannibalizing it all. It left a full mile of unlivable space between the haves and the have-nots. One more way of making sure the bowels rats stayed where they belonged. Overhead, the lift continued its rise, flanked by the drop's sheer walls. Rand settled himself down on the lift's flat roof and waited, watching with fascination the way the chains and pulleys system dragged the heavy metal box steadily upward. Then, he sensed it more than felt it and turned his armored face upward without knowing what he would see. He saw blue. The drop's eternal darkness now ended in a distant rectangle of shining blue. It wasn't much, little more than a pinprick. Even so, Rand knew what he had to be looking at. Sky. As the lift car rose ever higher, the rectangle took on shape and size, and a bit of white fluff floated through it. That's a cloud, Rand thought. He realized he was grinning like an idiot. As the lift approached the mouth of the drop, he noticed a new, oddly sweet smell. Lucy had once swiped a small vial of perfume from a middle market shop and had let him sniff it. That smell had been heady, almost overpowering, and the two of them, with a laugh, had ended up pouring it down the drop. This scent was subtler, but just as sweet. He wondered what it was. Above, the blue rectangle had grown big, shockingly, almost overwhelmingly big. Looking at it, Rand felt a little queasy. There was so much emptiness up there. They'd nearly reached the top now and were approaching the underside of the upper lift's platform. It was, of course, the first time Rand had ever seen this end of the lift's route. It looked like a broad iron ledge overhanging a portion of one edge of the drop, with precise holes cut into it to allow lift cars to pass snugly through. Ainsley had warned him that if it was still on the lift's roof when the car cleared its platform opening, the keepers stationed there would see him instantly. Time to go. Rand spotted a niche on the far side of the drop, a random break in an otherwise smooth iron wall. 
It was directly opposite the rising lift and seemed to move slowly downward as they passed it. One burst of steam would get him there. He stood and, ignoring the two miles of nothing between here and there, vaulted. He hit the niche perfectly. Now safely hidden, less than six feet below the lip of the drop, bathed in shadow, he crouched and turned around in time to spot Ainsley as the lift continued upward. Their eyes briefly met, and Rand smiled, trying to convey what he was feeling. So far, so good. But she didn't smile back. Her eyes, he noticed, seemed oddly vacant. Then the lift car disappeared through its platform opening, taking its loud clatter with it. And suddenly Rand could hear people. Upper folk were talking and laughing somewhere above him in that open air and under that blue sky. On the lift platform, perhaps, or nearby it. Rand peered cautiously upward. Just above the lip of the drop stood a gearbox, a big one, towering above him. Except, of course, this wasn't a gearbox. Gearboxes were drab rectangles of featureless iron. This was a metal monument, nearly sixty feet high. The structure's facade gleamed like a mirror, and windows, actual glass windows, checkered the face of it like a thousand small square eyes. This was a building. There were luds behind those windows, upper folk who looked out over a machine so utterly alien to the one he knew that Rand might as well be a rat trying to grasp mathematics. He shook himself. There'd be time to be amazed later. By now, Ainsley's lift would have arrived. He had to get to the top of that windowed building, and he had to do it without being seen. Rand had needed to ascend the drop during daylight hours, since Ainsley had said that the lifts closed down at dusk. You'll just have to get to the top of the nearest building quick as you can and hope you don't get spotted. You might not. The market plaza tends to be crowded and busy, so nobody will be paying much attention. You hope, Lucy had said, almost an accusation. I hope, Ainsley had admitted. But after spying over the drop's lip at the nearest upper folk, Ran Ken that Ainsley had a point. The people he could see moved in small, well-dressed groups, chatting amongst themselves or hurrying this way and that. Not one of them was looking toward the drop, much less peering down into its dark depths. He could do this if he did it fast. It would be a long vault, but what choice was there? It was either go for it or go home. Rand went for it. The pipe got him to the top of the building, though only just, forcing him at the last minute to clutch the roof's edge with his left hand. He dangled precariously for a moment while his armored feet sought purchase, but then pulled himself up and over. Regaining his feet, he found himself perched high over everything, looking down at the drop, the market lift platform, and the uppers beyond. It was breathtaking. The machine's pinnacle extended away from him in all directions. A hundred monuments, some taller than this one, surrounded him, their windows aglow with reflected light. Some of these huge structures had smaller structures built beside or between them. But these weren't any sort of factories or shops. These were flops, upper folks' flops. Even the smallest ones were big, and the big ones were huge, too huge for a single person or even a dozen. Were these the legendary palaces where the upper lords lived, those who ruled over those who ruled over them? Ainsley's father had been an upper lord, Rand knew. Was one of these palaces hers? Again he noticed the smell, fresh and sweet, though he still couldn't tell exactly where it was coming from. Then, as he looked around and kept inhaling the subtle sweetness through his nose, it dawned on him. This is just how it smells up here. It was a shock on a very basic level. All his life he'd lived in a world that stank of sweat, grease, and steam, where urine and dung were everywhere all the time. 
This sweetness was nothing more than the absence of all that. Fresh air. But that wasn't all. There was also color. Rand lived in a gray world. Now, all around him, he spied splashes of red and yellow and blue and green. Lots of green. It covered much of the surrounding knots, like rust, except more uniform and pleasing to the eye. Finally, and most astonishingly, were the trees. Rand had only heard of them in stories. Wood came from trees. But he'd always thought them to be kept indoors, raised in the factories. He'd never imagined them like this, speckling the landscape. They sprouted everywhere, each one covered in green leaves. Some stood alone, while others crowded whole open areas, growing so close that their branches intermingled. What were they for? Rand's mind reeled. Then he remembered Ainsley. He finally pried his eyes away from the majesty, the only word he could conjure up, and found her. The upper lass stood on the platform's edge, just as planned, staring up at him expressionlessly. Her small hands gripped the railing so tightly that Rand wondered how the metal bar didn't snap off under her fingers. Then she pointed toward a distant building. To Rand's eyes, its style was the most familiar he'd seen in this strange place. It looked nothing at all like the magnificent monuments around it. An enormous, featureless black cube. No windows and only one visible entrance, just as Ainsley had described. The hiding place of Project Vindicator. The Keep. The 25th Cog. Ainsley had warned Rand against steam vaulting around the uppers. It's not like down here, she had explained while the three of them had plotted. We don't have gearboxes surrounded by handy billows of steam to hide behind. We have buildings, most of them with windows, through which people can easily spot something as unlikely as a man in golden armor hopping around on vapor jets. Isn't there night? Lucy had asked. Sure. But then there are lights, lots of them, and the buildings are lit up inside and out. Light means shadows, Rand had pointed out. I can use shadows. Ainsley had considered. All right, but keep off the streets. The two of them had looked blankly at her. Then Lucy had asked, What's a street? Now Rand was getting his first ever look at streets. They were paved in shimmering steel. Most were narrow but a few seemed wide enough for twenty luds to stand abreast. And not just luds. Big, clattering gadgets that looked like small gearboxes on wheels traveled the wider streets, many stopping to pick up or drop off passengers. Apparently they were vehicles of some kind, like lifts, except these went here and there instead of straight up and down. It was a lot to process. So Rand put it aside and settled down atop the roof waiting for the sun to set. But even that taxed his imagination. The sun. He couldn't even begin to imagine what it was. It looked like a glowing yellow ball, so bright that its light pierced even his closed eyelids. He could feel its warmth and was astonished at how right it seemed. It was like being desperately thirsty and then finally having a good long drink. Strengthening. Replenishing. The sun was life. A big glowing ball of life that moved. As he watched, transfixed, it sunk lower in the sky, its light bouncing off the windowed buildings, lending everything a golden hue that deepened to burnt orange as its source neared the horizon. The horizon. To Rand, the world was the lowers. While he'd heard tell of the nowhere surrounding the machine, he'd never really given it much thought. He'd been too busy surviving. But now he could see the nowhere, or some of it anyway. And it was made of clouds. 
They surrounded the machine, extending beyond the limits of Rand's vision. But these weren't like the fluffy white ones that chased the wind across the darkening sky. These were iron-gray, a grim, unbroken blanket, as cumbersome and slow-moving as a well-fed grabber. As the sun disappeared completely, leaving behind a blood-red vista that quickly faded to black, Rand experienced a wave of jealousy, almost as intense as physical pain. All this beauty and these upper folk got treated to it every day. It wasn't right. It wasn't over, either. Stars appeared. Only a few at first, but soon they covered the night sky, a canopy of millions of lighted pinpricks. These made even less sense than the sun had, and for a long time, Rand tried to ken them, and failed. Just how much nowhere was there? The endless gray clouds were incomprehensible enough, but this? Rand felt as if the night might swallow him, consuming him without even knowing he was there. After all, he was small. Smaller than he'd ever imagined. Smaller than he could even conceive. Struggling with unfamiliar emotions, Rand dragged his eyes downward. It didn't help. He remained keenly aware of the immensity hanging above him, like a weight. How did the upper folk live with all that over their heads night after night? With a shudder, he thought, I've got things to do. More to the point, Torque had things to do. Rand vaulted across the drop and onto the roof of the building that housed the market lifts. Then, finding his bearings, he vaulted again, this time over a crowded street lit by regularly spaced lamps. As Rand landed smoothly atop a lower roof, he looked back and saw with relief that both jumps had gone unnoticed. Three more vaults carried him to a rooftop overlooking a broad green area that contained an enormous collection of trees. Ainsley had called it a park. The keep waited just beyond it. There were upper folk here, well-dressed luds and lasses strolling across the green or following gleaming metal paths that meandered through the trees, lit warmly by electric lamps mounted atop high iron posts. He wondered what the place was even for. As Ainsley had warned him, he'd reached the tree line and had basically run out of roofs. That was just as well as he now had only five steam cartridges left in his pipe. Time to take to the streets. To spare the steam, Rand climbed down a vertical pipe that dropped him into a narrow, darkened tunnel cut between two buildings. Ainsley had called it an alley. Once there, he pulled No Name's satchel off his back. The Ludling had loaned it to him before he'd left for the middle market. In fact, he'd made something of a ceremony of it. Would Torque do me the honor? He'd asked back in the flop, holding his old hide pouch up toward him, of carrying my satchel with him on this mission. Rand had almost laughed. Then he'd read the Ludling's expression and felt guilty about it. You sure? he'd asked. You need to carry your stuff in something, right? Right, Rand replied, accepting the satchel. Thanks. The Ludling met his eyes. Now, you owe me something. Solid. What do you want? I want you to survive. And come back. Now, concealed in the alley, Rand pulled out the satchel's contents. Clothes. Upper Lud's clothes. Ainsley had bought them in the middle, after which Lucy had hidden them near Torque's secret lift. Rand had then collected them when he'd arrived at the market. Dressing right, the upper lass had said, should get you close enough to the keep guards without raising the alarm. But be careful. On close inspection, you won't look all that upper, and if you get questioned by the keepers... Rand kenned. Also tucked away in one of the satchel's worn pockets, Rand was surprised to find two spare cartridges, one steam and one of undoctored grease. Both were wrapped in oily cloth, on which two words had been scrawled in charcoal using the modern tongue. 
Rand sounded them out. For luck. Rand smiled and loaded the cartridges. The upper clothes consisted of leather trousers, black leather boots, a white linen shirt with puffed out sleeves, an embroidered waistcoat, and a small leather cap. Rand had never worn anything so fine. The feeling of good fabric against his skin was both wonderful and a bit unnerving. It brought back that uncomfortable jealousy. Once he'd changed, he carefully tucked his armor into the now empty satchel. It fit, barely. Carrying it would be conspicuous, but he couldn't leave it here, not even if he found a great hiding place. Torque would be needed again before this business was finished. With the bulky burden over one shoulder, Rand Roberts, upper lud, left the alley and stepped onto the weird green floor, though it had grown too dark to really appreciate its color. Even so, it captivated him. Disguise or no, he surrendered to an urge to reach down and touch it. The stuff felt cool and surprisingly fragile, not smooth, but instead fashioned of millions of tiny individual stalks. Hesitantly, he gripped one of these stalks and tugged. It popped right off. Straightening, Rand looked around, afraid this tiny bit of vandalism would betray him. But the nearby upper folk paid no attention at all. So he sniffed the small stalk. It smelled like produce, like food. His stomach suddenly growled. So he tasted it. Chewy, but he'd had worse. Rand headed across the park, moving quickly but not running. As he did, he passed dozens of upper folk, many of whom offered polite nods, which he returned. No one sized him up. No one coveted his belongings. No one was starving or afraid. He reached the trees and stepped nervously in among them. They were gigantic and weirdly intimidating. Nevertheless, he kept walking, and as he'd expected, the trees noticed him even less than the upper folk had. It was darker here, and Rand used that darkness, keeping to the shadows until he reached the far edge of the park. There, a low iron fence marked the boundary between the green and the street beyond. And directly across that street, looming large, stood the keep. Its only entrance consisted of iron doors that looked heavy enough to keep out an army, never mind one lower lud. And in front of those doors, standing in loose formation, were a half-dozen keepers, with an equal number marching back and forth along the street between here and there. There'll be a dozen of them guarding the main entrance, Ainsley had explained, and maybe fifty more inside. Each one's got a whistle. So if, say, Torque were to land in the middle of that first dozen, the other fifty would be called immediately. Rand hadn't seen a way around that. Then Lucy, who had hated this entire idea from the start, suddenly spoke up. If you're really crazy enough to do this, then at least be clever about it. Show me one of those grease cartridges from Torp's pipe. Rand had done so, watching as the lower girl examined the disc-shaped gadget. Finally, she'd looked up and announced, Here's what you might do. And it was time to see if Lucy was as smart as Rand thought she was. Keeping to the shadows, he pulled Torp's pipe out from under his shirt. Then he pointed it at the first group of keepers, three of them, patrolling the nearer side of the street, just beyond the fence, ten feet away. He waited until they'd marched into a well of shadow between lamps. Then he fired. The pipe was close to silent as its stream of grease sprayed the keepers. At first, they all stopped in their tracks, shocked. Their faces and uniforms suddenly layered in dark, sticky fluid. Then they started probing at tiny stab wounds, finding pearls of red blood mixed with the grease. Rand watched one blood go for his whistle, only to discover that his fingers wouldn't grasp it. Then, within moments, each of them stiffened, and fell to the walkway as the grabber's venom did its work. The other group of three, patrolling the opposite side of the street, reacted to the sound and rushed over. Rand sprayed them as well. Six down. At Lucy's suggestion, Rand had soaked shards of iron, 
tiny but jagged, in the grabber's venom he and no name had collected and ground up. Then he'd used the mixture to doctor some grease cartridges. No one knew if it would really work. Well, it had. And Lucy was as smart as he thought she was. Unfortunately, Rand only had two more doctored cartridges in the pipe, which didn't leave much room for mistakes. The keepers guarding the entrance hadn't noticed their fallen comrades. They continued to stand, two abreast, their eyes focused on nothing. Rand climbed the fence, a feat so simple that he wondered why they'd bothered with it in the first place, and crossed the street. As he did, the keepers noticed him. Just a young upper lud with a satchel over his shoulder and carrying a stubby pipe. Curious, but unwary, they watched him approach. "'Help you, young sir?' one of them asked. Rand nodded, but he didn't speak. Instead, he raised the pipe and fired. This time, one shot caught them all. Within six seconds, six luds lay on the metal walkway, their paralyzed bodies stiffening. Feeling oddly proud of himself, Rand marched up to the heavy doors. To his surprise, they opened easily. Then again, why bother locking a door that's guarded by a dozen men? He pushed his way inside. The 26th Cog The keep's interior reminded him of the lowers. Rand found himself in a tunnel lined with iron doors. The only illumination came from dim, wall-mounted lamps. No light runes here. The uppers belonged to Jai, and Jaiism considered root magic to be either superstitious nonsense or outright heresy. None of the doors were labeled, and Rand probably couldn't have read them if they were. So, not knowing what else to do, he listened at the first left-hand door. Nothing. He tried its latch. Unlocked. He let himself into what turned out to be another tunnel with even more doors. This place was too big to search, especially given the half-hundred keepers presumably wandering around. It was time for Torque to ask directions. He got lucky there. The next door he tried turned out to be some kind of storage room. Shutting himself inside, Ran once more donned the gilded armor. No sooner had he stepped back into the hallway than one of the other doors opened. A young keeper appeared. He wasn't armed. Rand was on him in an instant, slamming the lud against the wall and ramming the end of his pipe under the keeper's chin. "'Know who I am?' Rand asked. The stunned and horrified keeper nodded. "'Know what happens if I steam you?' He leaned in close until mask nearly met flesh. "'This close up, it'll boil you inside your own skin. You want that?' The Lud uttered a terrified squeak. Not an answer, Rand growled. You want to get boiled? The Keeper shook his head. Solid. Where can I find Project Vindicator? The Keeper didn't reply. Forget it. I'll just dead you and ask someone else. End of the hall. Up the stairs. Top floor. Where on the top floor? The Lud looked sick. The entire top floor. Thanks. He slammed the Keeper across the temple and left his unconscious body on the hallway floor. Rand figured this trail of paralyzed or unconscious keepers would be discovered sooner rather than later, and once the general alarm sounded, they'd track him down fast. He needed to find what he'd come to find. He went to the door at the end of the hallway and opened it. Beyond were steps, going up. Rand climbed five levels until the winding staircase went no further. The top floor. Here, there was only one door, and it bore a label that Rand could sound out. Restricted. Like the others, this door was unlocked. Something about that bothered him. Rand stepped into a huge, dimly lit space. The walls extended for hundreds of feet. Clearly, the keeper had told the truth. This room did use up the entire top floor, or close to it. Light came from lamps mounted around the perimeter, which left a deep gloom in the room's center. 
Curiously, the walls weren't smooth metal. Instead, Rand could make out ledges, severed cables, and broken piping reaching all the way up to the 60-foot ceiling, serving no obvious purpose. In fact, they looked deliberately constructed to appear jagged or broken. This place reminded Rand of the walls of the drop. He moved deeper in. As he did, three more lamps, these ceiling-mounted, came to life, illuminating the chamber's center and causing Rand to jump in surprise. In front of him, visible for the first time, stood three enormous somethings. Each was at least fifty feet long and half that high, and completely concealed beneath a heavy black tarp. Wary, his pipe at the ready, Rand approached the nearest and touched the stiff canvas. It was heavy, but not so much that he couldn't peek at whatever was hidden underneath. So he switched on the pipe lamp and lifted one edge. A voice said, It's a vindicator. Rand whirled around. A portion of the side wall began to open, two halves of it sliding apart to reveal a smaller adjacent chamber. A man in a fancy keeper's uniform emerged. He was the oldest person Rand had ever seen, though he stood tall and broad-shouldered and looked healthy. With him were four younger keepers and an immaculately dressed upper lady. Rand eyed them, but said nothing. Welcome, Torque, the old Lud said. I'm Henry Gammon, Commandant of the Keep, and this is Lady Edith Baird, Proctor of the Machine. The woman smiled. A pleasure, young man. We've heard a great deal about you. Rand analyzed the situation. Five men and a woman. The keepers were armed, but hadn't drawn their weapons, which was odd. Odder still was the manner of their entrance. Casual, confident, and relaxed. Almost as if... You expected me, Rand said. We did, Baird acknowledged. That's why all the doors were unlocked. Gannon explained. Well, you handled the guards with such inventive efficiency. It seemed only fair to allow you unrestrained access. You're a remarkable fellow, the proctor said. Rand Roberts. Rand felt his mouth go dry. Gammon motioned behind him and two additional keepers stepped into view. A slip of a girl was held firmly between them. Ainsley Pinkerton looked at Rand with guilty horror. I'm sorry, she exclaimed, tears rolling down her cheeks. They forced me. At first, Rand didn't know how to respond. He recalled Ainsley's demeanor during the lift ride. She'd looked empty, defeated, very different from the girl who'd boldly strolled into the black. He should have realized something was wrong. In fact, he thought he might have sensed it. But he'd been too caught up in the mission to credit his own instincts. Ainsley had set him up. But from the look on her face, she hadn't done it willingly. Gammon said, You're an exceptional young man, for a Balsrad. Only a true soldier could have survived the drop and avoided all of my subsequent efforts to remove you. I respect you for that. Rand didn't reply. However, you've become a nuisance interfering with keepers in the lawful performance of their duty, rabble-rousing. Shameful, Baird remarked. But it ends tonight, Gammon said. Rand was concerned, but not desperate. The chamber they shared had plenty of space and shadows, both of which would prove to his advantage. Unfortunately, having only six steam cartridges left in his pipe complicated matters. He asked, Are you expecting me to surrender? The commandant laughed. Surrender? Perish the thought! Actually, I thought I'd show you what you came to see. I don't ken. Ken, Baird echoed, glancing back at Ainsley. Do you hear how he speaks, using words that don't even exist? This is the sort of person with whom you choose to ally yourself? He's worth ten of you, Ainsley said hotly. Murdering bitch. Watch your mouth, girl, Gammon warned. Remember where your brother is. The blood drained from Ainsley's face. You don't ken, eh? The commandant said. Then let me be clearer. You came to find Project Vindicator. 
Well, there it stands. Or rather, they stand. Behind you. Rand looked at the monstrous tarps. What are they? Mech, of course. Revolutionary devices designed for population management. Meticulously constructed over many years and at great expense, they're the future of the machine. Allow me to demonstrate. Commandant Gammon clapped his hands. Rand watched the heavy canvas concealing the first of the somethings lift at the corners, carried aloft by thin black cables that in the gloom Rand hadn't spotted. Beneath it stood a huge gadget, one that had been built to resemble a... Rat, Gammon announced. That's what we call it. Not very imaginative, but apt. Nearly fifty feet long and perhaps sixteen at the shoulder, the beast was built of heavy iron, with armored joints making up each of its girder-like legs. Its four feet, all ended in sword-like claws, and its long tapered tail had what looked like a spear's point at its tip. It had an enormous head with a tapered snout and a mouth filled with steel spikes for teeth. Yard-long wire whiskers jutted from the sides of its nose. Gammon said, Its clockwork represents the very pinnacle of modern mechology. Truly a state-of-the-art weapon. Rat! Awaken! Fires began to glow in the gadget's eyes. Its whiskers twitched, and its huge head rose. Both metal ears pricked, turning toward the sound of its master's voice. As it moved, oiled gears inside the thunderous body turned smoothly, and puffs of steam issued from what passed for its nostrils. Rat's a climber and a digger, Gammon explained. Its teeth and claws can penetrate almost anything. It's nimble enough to climb down the drop and strong enough to burrow through the thickest gearbox walls. Best of all, it has no conscience and won't hesitate to tear apart a hundred Bal's rats. Or a thousand. Why? Rand demanded. Why would you even want to do something like that? It was Proctor Baird who answered. Too many of you and too few of us. Did you think we hadn't noticed the Lower's population growth? Rat will help us cull you. Thin the herd, if you will. Rand struggled to grasp this. They were going to use this thing to kill lower folk indiscriminately, simply to keep their numbers down. Impressed? the commandant asked. This can't all be mech, Rand said, fighting to hide his horror. There's magic here. Of course, Gammon replied. Did you think you lower folk with your light runes and healing spells had cornered the market on ancient knowledge? The physicality of Project Vindicator may be fashioned of mech, but its heart and power comes from very ancient glamour. It's a monster, Ainsley cried. It's a tool, Baird said, a means of establishing lasting control over the lowers. Your father's Project Torque was imaginative, I admit, and effective to a point, but it coddled the working classes too much. Rand exclaimed, You meant for Torque to be shot that day. Gammon studied him. Clever boy. That's exactly what they did, Ainsley cried. It gave them their excuse to launch this on the lowers and to murder my father. But the proctor shook her head, giving the commandant a quick, reproachful glance. August's death was unplanned. He was an upper lord, one of us, for all his strange ideas. I mourn him. And as I said much earlier when I spoke to the staff of the Watch, I told them how Torque invaded his home and murdered him. Ainsley glared at her. Gammon killed him, and I'll say so. Henry may have pulled the trigger, but it was you and your foolish devotion to such naive concepts as justice for all that cost your father his life. You can ponder that, Gammon suggested, while you and your brother await execution. What? 
the girl exclaimed. But I did what you wanted. I brought Rand here. You promised you'd let Gerard go. He faced her. You're a ridiculous, gullible girl. With your father dead, we now have control over the watch. But to keep that control and use it to manage public opinion, we need to make sure there are no Pinkerton heirs. Regrettable, the proctor added, but necessary. Hearing this seemed to drain away Ainsley's strength. Dropping to her knees between her two keeper guards, she began to sob. As for you, Gammon continued, turning to Rand, you'll be dead in a few minutes, and finally we'll have seen the last of Torque. Then the Vindicators will be put to work below the middle market. You think the devastation you witnessed in the Black was impressive? That's nothing beside what these devices will accomplish. I don't think so, Rand said. Raising his pipe, he started forward. Rat, the Commandant said. Kill him. Instantly, the Vindicator rose up on its hind legs and lashed out with one of its huge front paws, striking Rand a blow that sent him flying. Rand and Ainsley fight for their lives in the next episode of Torque by Ty Drago. Or, if you just can't stand the wait, the full novel is available in paperback and ebook formats on Amazon.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>